We're going to be finishing up kind of our Easter series with uh, John 21. Let's pray. And now, Lord God, I ask that you would um, just take me completely out of the way and bring your word forth, make it be something that uh, we look at and we see and we understand. And Lord, we ask that your spirit would do what needs to be done in each of our hearts and lives. If it's encouragement, that you would encourage. If it's to challenge, Lord God, you would challenge. If it's to convict, that you would convict. Lord, we ask for you to work through your word and by your spirit this morning. And in your name we ask this. Amen. Please be seated. Coming into Easter this year, I was thinking of uh, doing something that would take us kind of on the road with Christ on his way to Jerusalem. So we did a few weeks on that. And then, of course, the the, the crucifixion and um, the resurrection. Well, this is the, the last kind of passage that deals with some of those things. And I thought it would be appropriate for us to, to deal one more time with that whole time frame, realizing that at the end of this time, Christ was going to be resurrected and on into, on into heaven, um, ascending into heaven. But as I was thinking about this, I wanted to ask a question, and please don't answer it out loud, but answer it in your own mind. The first question is, what is the hardest part of asking someone to forgive you or saying that you're sorry? What's the hardest part of that for you? Maybe it's um, seeing that you've actually done something. Maybe it's realizing that you need to say something about what you've done. And then how do you how do you restore that relationship? What is it that has to happen? And I want you to just kind of think about that a little bit. You, you've hurt somebody or harmed somebody and you've asked forgiveness. What's it going to take now to restore that relationship? The second question is maybe even harder. What is the hardest part of forgiving someone who has wronged you? And um, it might be harder in some ways because it may be that we don't want to forgive it may be that we say, you know what, uh, yeah, not a chance. And, and let me just say this kind of as a parenthesis. You know, um, I firmly believe that even when we've been harmed greatly, we have to get to the point where we forgive. That does not mean that we have to have a restored relationship necessarily with a person, depending on what uh, what has caused the offense. But I'm not dealing with that part of that this morning. Just dealing with the whole idea that restoration requires something of us. Or someone to restore a relationship with somebody else or someone restoring a relationship with us. Um, so as we jump into John chapter 21, keep that in mind. You know, what had happened in previous chapters and what did Peter do and some of the other disciples? Now by the time we get into chapter 21, all of the disciples have seen the risen Lord. All of them. Matter of fact, go ahead and put that chart up if you would. This is kind of a flow on that very first Resurrection Sunday. The first person to see Jesus was Mary, and then the other women, and Mary Salome, and then apparently Peter, we're not positive, that comes from one of the epistles. But Peter saw the Lord on his own, a couple on the road to Emmaus did on that same day, and then the ten disciples minus Thomas, all on that first day. Eight days later, all eleven disciples saw and then we have the seven disciples from John 21. So when we get to that word afterward, what is it afterward that he's referring to? He's referring to all these other appearances, 
which take place. And then once they're in Galilee, the seven disciples who go fishing are seen in that context. And of course, you've got a large group of over 500 that see Jesus, and we're thinking it's in that category. James sees Jesus, and then all of the disciples at the Mount of Olives as the Lord ascends. So those are basically kind of roughly the the resurrection appearances that we have mentioned in Scripture. So let's jump into verse 1. We've already discussed what the afterwards is all about, where it falls into the chronology. After Jesus had appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, which is the Sea of Galilee, it happened this way. Simon, Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cain of Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, which would have been James and John, and two other disciples were together. And Peter said, I'm going to go fishing. And they said, okay, we'll go with you. And they all jump in the boat starting in the evening, and they go out, and they're out all night. Verse 4, early in the morning comes up. And this is this is uh, one of those things where you read the story, and if you've ever been fishing or run, been around people who love to fish, I mean, it's their passion. Um, there's some fun things that come out of this uh, that you, that you kind of think and you wonder about. But uh, early in the morning, <clears throat> um, Jesus stood on the shore, and and they didn't know who it was yet. And in verse five, he calls out to them and says, "Hey, you catch anything?" And the last thing a fisherman wants to hear, if he hasn't caught anything, is that question. Right? I didn't want to, I didn't want to hear somebody say, hey, what's going on? And the way Jesus said it was, friends, haven't you any fish? So he already knew that they didn't have any fish. And they said no. And then he says to them, throw your net on the other side of the boat. Throw your net on the other side of the boat. Of course they do, and they've got this miraculous uh, catch of fish. Now, the question is, what are they doing in Galilee? I mean, they were in, they were in, um, Jerusalem last time we saw. And yet, if you remember in Mark chapter 6, the angel told the women to remind the disciples that if they went to Galilee, that Jesus would see them there. It didn't happen immediately. They had to finish out some of the stuff with the religious holiday that they were celebrating, and then eventually they all went home, and that's where we find the disciples, um, going out and going fishing. Um, John is one of those guys that all through the book he contrasts light and darkness. They're symbols and wonderful ways that he mixes those things up. So it's very possible as he's talking about night and the darkness of night and the fact that they've caught absolutely nothing. And then he contrasts that with Jesus coming at dawn and a miraculous catch of fish. So you've got these wonderful contrasts. And if you're, you're a storyteller, you're listening to all of this and you're going, oh man, that, he did that perfectly. You know how he laid that all out, how they were supposed to be doing this. And so you have the fish that are caught, and um, it's a large number of fish that they haul in. Then, <clears throat> then Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, then verse 7, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. Now there are ways out from shore. Some people say it's about 100 yards. One of the translations actually says that. But John's the only one that looks out there and says, that's Jesus over there. All the other guys, they don't know who it is. But they do throw the net, and I'm sure that was then their next clue. All of a sudden, boom, there's just way too many fish to actually even bring the net on board. Now, this is the other fascinating one. Verse 7, the disciple whom Jesus loved said, It's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say it, that it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped in the water. Now, again, people speculate about this, and I have as much fun with it as as anybody else. Some people think, well, you know, uh, 
he was expecting to walk to shore in the water like he did the last time when he walked on the water. Eh, maybe, probably not, but that's possible. It's probably more likely that in the culture of the time, if you were going to go greet someone like the rabbi or like greeting Jesus, you did not want to go half clothed maybe with just the clothing that you were working in. And so he put on the outer garment so that he would be clothed appropriately and probably then tied it up. When I was in Myanmar, many of the men wore what they would call lungjis, which basically is like a tube skirt that they wrap around, and that's what they wear. Now, if they're going to play soccer, they just pull that thing up and tie it in knots, and they've got shorts. So it's very possible Peter was actually doing that, tying it all up, and then he jumps in the water, gets to shore, and then he can actually greet Jesus fully clothed as, as uh, you know, the custom would have dictated. So that's a possibility. Um, <clears throat> verse 7 and verse 8 then goes on. The other disciples followed in the boat, pulling the net full of fish. They were not far from shore, about a hundred yards, and then when they land, they saw fires already burning there, and these guys have been working all night, so guess what Jesus has done? He made breakfast, so they've got breakfast of bread and fish waiting for them. I don't know if you've ever had bread and fish for breakfast, um, once or twice in places I've visited. <clears throat> so anyway, he says, hey, bring some of the fish over, and they come over, and there's a sense in them that they know it's Jesus, but it's different. This isn't like when Jesus was before he died. He, he now has this resurrected body. He can now pass through walls and, and he can be here and then suddenly not be here. And so, so they're, they're, they're gathered around and they know it's Jesus, but they're still kind of wondering about how this is going and, 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 <clears throat> and what's going to happen after that. So they get together, they're starting breakfast. Verse 11, Simon Peter climbs aboard the, the, and drags the net ashore. It was full of 153 fish, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Now, there are people who have an awful lot of fun with the number 153. Karen and I had a professor in Bible school who had it figured out. I mean, it was like a formula. You had to do this and multiply it by that and divide it by this and the day of the week and a whole bunch of stuff. And it it had some kind of special meaning. Um, And you know what? I respected him. And if that was what he thought he he got out of that, I was fine with that. Then my best explanation that I've heard is that's what fishermen do. They count the fish. How many did you catch? 153 fish. How are you going to divide that seven ways? Well, if you have 153, you know how to do that. So that that's probably what's going on here. The number is spectacular. Two miracles have taken place. One is they get all the fish when they fished all night and didn't get any. And secondly, the net, which should have apparently ripped and torn with that many, did not. So that's the miraculous side of all of this. They have all these fish. None of them get away. And and the Lord has blessed them in, in a very special way this this. Uh, on this morning. Then he, Jesus says, come on over and eat. Um, <clears throat> he took bread and he gave it to them, took fish and gave it to them. And then 14 tells us this is the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So you have, this, these are the ones that John's recording. You've got the recordings in the first day and then eight days later and then this one. Uh, the other gospels give us some of the other days as well. We saw the chart and we saw how you had Mary Magdalene, then the women, and then Peter, and then down the road we have this particular appearance as well. Then in verse 15, and here we get to one of the reasons probably why John wrote this uh, this wonderful chapter in this book. 
When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. And so the question becomes, and he says this three times, do you love me more than these? The, the question becomes, what are the these? When he says, do you love me more than these? What does that mean? Some people think it's the whole idea of, okay, he's been on the Sea of Galilee his whole life. He's been a fisherman. This is a lifestyle that he's loved. And, and Jesus is asking him to give that all up. Do you love me more than this lifestyle? Living this way and feeding your family from the Sea of Galilee. That's a possibility. Second possibility that people have is, do you love me more than these other guys? I know we've been together three, three and a half years, and you guys have a close bond, and do you love me more than the other guys? That's a possibility too. The possibility that I think is coming is really tied to the context of some other things that happen uh, in the book of John and, and actually the other Gospels. And I think what he's saying to him is, do you love me more than these other disciples love me? Now remember, he is the one that actually said, Lord, even if everybody else denies you, I won't do that. I love you more, and in other words, parenthesis, I love you more than they do. I won't deny you. So understand that. Three times he denies the Lord before the Lord dies, and now the Lord's going to ask him some questions. Three times. Do you love me more than these? And he says, yes, Lord. Um, <clears throat> verse 20, let's go to Matthew really quickly, just kind of get a picture of this. Jesus told them, Matthew twenty six thirty one, This very night you will fall away on account of me, and for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep and the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Even if I'll fall away, on account of you, I never will. Strong, strong statement. And, and please understand, Peter meant this. This wasn't something he was just being flippant about. He really did mean this. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same thing. So, that gives us the context now. Jesus actually denied the Lord three times. And now Jesus asks him the first question, Do you love me more than these? And he says, Yes, I do. And then verse 16, again Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? And he answered, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, Take care of my sheep. That's the second time. He says, Feed my sheep, take care of my sheep. Uh, and then the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And the Lord, he said, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. So remember, there were three times when he denied the Lord after he had vowed, if you will, that he wasn't going to do that. <clears throat> three times when he in a sense, protected himself, which is probably what we all would have done facing the same circumstances. And um, here he is, you know, again, now three times the Lord has asked the question, do you really love me? And he's answered, yes, Lord, you know everything. You know everything there is to know. You know that I love you. Now, <clears throat> if you go into the Greek 
Jesus uses the word agape the first two times when he says, you love me. And then the third time he uses phileo. And Peter answers with phileo. And and the reason people make a big deal of this is agape is that kind of self-sacrificing love. Phileo is more like brotherly love. The problem with that is if you want to make a big deal of that in this passage here and in this scene, is that John uses those words interchangeably much of the way through the gospel. So brotherly love and agape love in John's way of thinking are so close that he just they're interchangeable. The other thing that we have to think about is what language were they speaking at this point? It's just people who were Jewish people from Galilee. And were they speaking Greek or were they speaking Aramaic, which is much more likely. And in Aramaic, there's only one word for love. So, again, we're back to, was John, when he wrote this in Greek, trying to say, well, Jesus was saying something bigger, more elevated than Peter, or was he just using those words because he used them interchangeably all through in different places? And that's kind of where I come down on on the whole thing. I don't think that the words themselves were as important, but the, the point Jesus was making was important. Do you love me more than these? In other words, do you, do you really love me, Peter, like you said you did? Do you love me more than these other guys love me? And and that's kind of the question that's being asked here. Now, what's going on in all of this is that after the denial of Peter and the shame and everything that went with that, and of course he privately met with the Lord, and I'm sure he was forgiven, he was forgiven at that time. But this now is a public restoration, because they all heard the denials themselves. And so I think what Jesus is doing here is calling to attention, okay, Peter, we've talked about this, and you have been forgiven. I'm giving you this challenge, and this this is what you need to be doing moving forward. So he is restoring Peter to leadership, and he's restoring Peter to ministry, and he's restoring people Peter to do what he has called him to do, which is to shepherd and care for the flock of God. By the way, it's an important point that he makes. They're his sheep. And Peter's to shepherd his sheep. They're not Peter's sheep. They're not John's sheep. They're the Lord's sheep. And the Lord says, watch over my sheep. Take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. And so it just really, really struck me as I was studying through this again this week. And I, I think sometimes maybe we focus on serving and doing more than we focus on knowing and loving. And Because that was the question Jesus asked. Jesus didn't say, so Peter, are you doing? No, he said, do you love me, Peter? Do you really love me? Peter, do you love me? And I love the emphasis on that. Our service for the Lord should actually flow out of knowing and loving the Lord as well. That's where our service should come from. Our service shouldn't come from a place of, oh, I guess I better serve, because if I don't, I won't look like a very good Christian. Or, doggone it all, Lord, I don't want to do this, but oh well, I'm kind of stuck with it, so I'll do it. Our service needs to flow out of our knowing and loving our Lord Jesus. Verse 18, then, the Lord is speaking and he says, I tell you the truth, when you were younger, speaking to Peter still, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when you are old... You will stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. 
And so if you're reading this going, what in the world is that? What does that mean? Well, John gives us the meaning. Verse 19, Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to Peter, follow me. Now, I'm just going to pause there before we continue. <clears throat> if we go back and we sit through and, and look and try to figure out, okay, when was Matthew written and all these other books? And we have we have pretty decent time frame set. Matthew may have been the earliest one within 15, 20 years of when Jesus ascended into heaven. So that might have been the, the first of the Gospels written. And then you've got Mark and Luke that come along there. John comes along and he wrote this book probably 85, 95 A.D., Okay, so this is way, way after the ascension of Jesus. By the way, Peter probably was martyred in 64, 65, somewhere near A.D. Paul, just before that. So as John is actually writing this gospel, what he's talking about Jesus saying already happened. He's writing about this. Because the Spirit of God laid this on his heart for us to know. But can you imagine what that must have been like? To be writing something, you know, Peter, you're going to have your arms stretched out and you're going to, you, you're going to die for me. You will glorify me in your death. And <clears throat> John, 20 years maybe after the fact, is writing about what Jesus had predicted. And that's one of the things that just really struck me this week as I was, as I was studying. And then, of course, it says this is this was the one who had leaned on Jesus. That was John uh, at the supper table and said, Lord, who, who is going to betray you? Verse 21, when Peter saw him, John, apparently Jesus and Peter were now taking a walk or had pulled away a little bit from the rest of the group. He says, Lord, what about him? Okay, so the Lord has just told Peter, <laughs> you're going to die and you're going to honor me as a martyr in your death. And Peter looks around and says, hey, what about John? Is he going to die too? I mean, that's really what he's asking. Is, is John going to die a martyr's death too? And I love Jesus' answer. Verse 22, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? What is that to you, Peter? You must follow me. So he says, what I've got going with John and my relationship with John and what I require of John has nothing to do with you, Peter. Peter, I'm laying before you your responsibility and the things I'm calling you to do. You need to follow me. You don't need to be worried about John. How many times would we have less hassles in our churches if we did that? Mark, don't worry. Don't worry about that person. Follow me. Mark, pay attention. <laughs> I'm talking to you. I'll talk to them. But that's between me and them. I think I'd have been with Peter. I would have said, Lord, what about him? But the Lord's very clear. What is that to you? You follow me. And the reason John wrote John 21 really in this way was to say the reason we respect and honor and uphold Peter as we did in the early days was because Peter was ordained by God in a special way to lead. And he was the one that God set aside. 
He's also the one that God set aside to be one of the first martyrs as well. But John was also setting aside that thing that had started to be said, and that was that people were saying, well, you know, he's the last of the 12 disciples. He's outlived them all by years and years and years. Maybe he isn't going to die. Or maybe he isn't going to die until Jesus comes. And and it's interesting because John says, wait a minute here, verse 23, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? And John is saying, hey, the rumor spread, but that isn't what Jesus said. Jesus simply said, if I want him to remain, Peter, what's that to you? Nothing, Peter, because it's you and me, and then it's me and John. So this disciple who testifies, John says, we know that his testimony is true. Uh, Jesus did all kinds of other things, and, and we just don't have even the space to put them all down on paper, was his, his statement. Now, the way he ends this about the whole idea, the one who wrote these down, his testimony is true, was kind of a legal way that you would end a legal document. You would say who it was, and you would say what they were witnesses to, and the fact that they could stand up and, and, and say something in, in testimony about, about the situation. And, and then we end, that's it. That's the end of John chapter 21 and the end of the gospel. So just take the rest of our time. Let's just take some implications and see what we can draw together from this. I love Peter's answer, <clears throat> the third question when Jesus says, do you, do you love me? He says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Um, and on one level, I think what Peter was saying was, you can see my heart. Look, look at my heart. You know what's going on in there. Lord, you know that I love you. You know that I, I want to serve you. Lord, you know that I failed you. But look at my heart now, Lord, because I'm, I'm seeking to honor you at this point. And, and it's important for us to remember Peter had been forgiven, and I firmly believe that this was more than anything a public demonstration of his restoration. Uh, I think he'd already been restored when the Lord met with him privately. But at this point, he's also saying, I'm, I'm commissioning Peter and my disciples to do special things. Well, Peter's going to be one of the leaders, and Peter needs to have my statement that you are the one that needs to be shepherding and caring for the flock. Now, what needed to happen before Peter could be restored? I think uh, three things. After Peter had denied the Lord, he needed to recognize his actions as sinful. And I think in that meeting with Jesus, that was certainly something that took place. We're not told about it, but I'm assuming that. Um, he repented of his words and actions. And you see that as, he's, as the Lord's asking him, he finally gets down to the point where he says, Lord, you know everything. You know my heart. Uh, what I say isn't anywhere near as important as you looking down and seeing that I love you and I want to serve and follow and honor you. And then... Just the whole idea of returning and following Jesus. Remember the prodigal son ran off with his inheritance and and, uh, spent it frivolously and sinfully. He comes to his senses and he recognizes that his sin is something that has brought this about. And he, he wants to turn away from that sin. And so he repents, turns away from his sin, and he returns home. And there's those old things of recognize and repent and return. <clears throat> and, and, and the son does that. He comes back to his father's house. And he said, I've sinned against God. I've sinned against you. Just make me a servant. Why? He wanted everybody to see that. The son who had gone bad had come back, and he, as he throws this party, is treating him like a son and not a servant.
And I think that was the, kind of the imagery that's, that's here in these verses with the prodigal son. And so as, as we think through those things, when you think about Peter being forgiven, you think about the forgiveness and the grace that God gives in so many ways, one of the questions we need to say is, okay, how have I blown it? How have I done things that are shameful? You know, the, the wonderful, great news of the gospel is that Jesus forgives and restores anyone who repents and comes back. I love the words of an Aaron Keyes song, one of my favorite songs that he wrote. Um, <clears throat> it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you're coming from. It doesn't matter where you've been. Hear me tell you, I forgive the father could have sung that to his prodigal son, couldn't he? You're not guilty anymore. You're not filthy anymore. I love you. Mercy is yours. You're not broken anymore. You're not captive anymore. I love you. Mercy is yours. And so <clears throat> one of the things that we face, all of us, whether it's our, our guilty conscience, which if it's our conscience and we confess that, that the Lord takes care of that. But sometimes we're attacked by the evil one with things that he brings back and says, well, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. You, you, you remember when you did that or when you said that? And, and the answer is you're not guilty. You're not filthy. You're not broken. You're not captive. Mercy is yours. There's always forgiveness at the cross. It's forgiveness to save us, but then there's always the sense of being able to come back and be forgiven and restored as well. Um, the, the, <clears throat> always forgiveness, and then that leads to restoration as well. God's grace is so incredible. It's so rich, um, so full. I, I, we just, I can't get over sometimes the wonder of the grace of God. As you think about Christians in the world today, there are places where it's very, very hard to live out your faith in a public way. Some places it can lead to, to death. Um, I was reading about somebody who had, um, had been instrumental in, in taking the lives of believers and, and uh, causing incredible pain and suffering for believers. And everywhere he went, he was, he was anti-Christians and those who followed Jesus. Until the unthinkable happened, the mercy and the grace of God was extended to this person. And the grace of God changed a violent man who was anti-God and anti-Christ and anti-Jesus, and he saved him. Incredible. Now, <clears throat> I don't know about you, but if I was in one of those churches that had been persecuted, I'm not sure I would say, oh yeah, come on in brother, we're glad to have you. Would have been hard to do, wouldn't it? And yet, that did happen. People recognized his salvation and he was brought back in. And we know him as Saul of Tarsus or the Apostle Paul. <laughs> that's who he was. And that's what he did. Until the mercy and the grace of God changed him. And if God can forgive Peter and his denials and restore him, if God can forgive Paul and his persecution and the taking the lives of Christians and use him, then God can use us.
no matter what's happened, no matter what we've done. We must come to him surrendering our will and submitting to his and saying, Lord God, I just want to do what you have for me and then seek to live out the gospel in our lives every day. There's another implication. After Jesus restored Peter, he warns him what that's going to cost him. Um, Peter went into the last stage of his life, the ministry of the gospel and all that, with no illusions. This was going to cost him his life. He knew that. Jesus had made it very clear. And yet, Jesus had said, follow me, Peter. We'll go through this together. That's interesting because when he looked back at John and said, hey, Lord, what about John? I think one of the things he was trying to to say was, well, you know, God, how come me and not him? And I, I love the fact that Jesus said, hey, what is that to you? We're talking, and this is between you and me. You follow me. I don't know if you've ever done that. Have you ever said, Lord, what about him? Lord, how come you're blessing them? And it's interesting that Peter had gifts and abilities and talents, and and he, when surrendered to the Lord, he did some incredible, amazing things that we read about in the scriptures and we read the books that he wrote. And John had a whole different set of gifts, a whole different ability. And in Peter's case, he did all of those things, and then he died and and honored God in his death. And John lived, outlived everybody, and continued to live and continued to go, which I don't know if that would have been easier or harder. After everybody else is gone, John is still living, teaching, preaching, raising up others so the gospel can continue. God's plan was different for Peter and for John. Jesus told Peter that he was responsible to follow him. You know, one of the things that I was thinking about this week, when I get to heaven, the Lord isn't going to say, hey, Mark, what did, what did Andrew Gosen do? He's sitting here in the front row so he'd get picked on. He's not going to ask me about Andrew. He's not going to ask me about David Pikey. He's going to say, Mark, Let's talk about you. Let's look at what you did. And let's deal with the rewards that you will have coming as a result of the life that you lived. Mark, did you follow me faithfully? Did you do what I called you to do? Was your heart totally committed to me, no matter what? I don't know if you're a C.S. Lewis fan, but uh, at our house we are, and I love the Chronicles of Narnia. And one of those, all four of the kids end up back in Narnia, and Aslan's nowhere to be found, and they don't know where they are, and they're trying to discover where they need to be because they know they've come back for a purpose. And Lucy, the youngest, sees Aslan, and Aslan's calling to her to come. And she tells the others that she sees him, and they don't see him, and so they refuse to go, and so she kind of just doesn't do anything. Well, some time goes by, and things are getting worse in their situation, and finally Lucy sees him again, and <clears throat> she says, I've got to go. And so she goes ahead and she follows Aslan, and the rest of them say, well, all right, we, we'll go with her. And after that is all said and done, and all the rest of them finally see Aslan, Lucy has this conversation with them. He says, you mean I was supposed to follow you? Even if nobody else did? And Aslan answered, yes. 
And Jesus calls us to follow, no matter what. And a couple of things here. Jesus calls us to follow him. Our path will never contradict Scripture. He's not going to call me to do something that somewhere in Scripture says, uh, no, you shouldn't be doing that. That's an important point to always keep in mind. He will not ask us to lie or cheat or be deceitful or do things in ways that are shady. And our path may be completely different from everybody else's path in the sense of following the Lord. We are to follow the Lord and, and the part path that he's marked out for us. Many times we're with other people walking along that path. But even all of us together, there's still individual things that happen in each life as we seek to follow the Lord. And that's, to me, the most important thought that came through this whole passage for me was, you follow me. And so I thought that through. Came up with some excuses. But Lord, I'm single. I can't do this alone. You follow me. But Lord, I don't have the right kind of training. You follow me. But Lord, I hate my job. I can't find another one. You follow me. But Lord, my my kids and my grandkids, they've walked away from the faith. You follow me. Uh, Of course, he or she can serve you, Lord. They've got resources, all kinds of stuff I don't have. You follow me. But Lord, every day is a struggle for me. It's complicated. It's hard. You follow me. But Lord, why me? There are more qualified people, more gifted people, people with more money, people who can do it easier. You follow me. But Lord, no one else is doing this. No one else is helping. You follow me. But Lord, I asked you and I begged you, and you said no. How can I keep going? You follow me. Maybe you see yourself in one of those or something similar. Like Peter, our responsibility is to obey God regardless of what others are doing. And we may be tempted to say, why? Or Lord, what about them? But Jesus' statement to us, Jesus' statement to you and to me is, you follow me. There's no other way to to see that passage. What do we take away from all this? In order to follow the Lord faithfully, there are three things I think the disciples had to think through and work out. And, And I'm sure they didn't have a PowerPoint with these things laid out, but it did probably something that they learned along the way. Lay down their own plans and ideas. Okay? Unconditional surrender. Accept God's plan. Wholeheartedly trust God. I can't imagine what Peter was thinking when he said, Okay, so I'm going to serve and follow you, but it's not going to end well. Might have been his thinking. And then we follow him by his grace and with his strength. And one of the things we need to always keep in mind is that this whole group of people in that time frame when Jesus when Jesus came, they had been taught that when Messiah comes, he's setting up a kingdom and he's going to rule. That's what they were taught. And that's what they believed. And so Jesus came. And he didn't. He died on a cross. And so on, on, on one level, that, that's, that's a struggle. Matter of fact, in that passage in Mark, that, or in Acts that we read at the beginning, it said, Lord, is this the time when you're going to set and reestablish the kingdom? 
And he said, it isn't up for you to know the times and so forth. And, and, and on one level, what he's saying is it's coming, but not now. So now you follow me. So instead of the Messianic kingdom, instead of Jesus setting up God's kingdom here on earth, Jesus was saying, there's going to be suffering, there's going to be sacrifice, there's going to be hardship, there's going to be martyrdom, but I'm calling you to follow me. Have you ever had a dream? A dream that got shattered? A good dream maybe? A godly dream maybe even? Naomi mother-in-law of Ruth had a dream that her sons would grow up and marry and have children. She had a dream that uh, she would grow older with her husband, surrounded by her sons and their wives and all of her grandkids. And that dream was shattered. Her husband died, both her sons died. And she and Ruth come back to Bethlehem and they've essentially got nothing. Matter of fact, Naomi said, I went out full and I came back empty. Don't talk to me about the goodness of God. At times, when we have dreams that are shattered, it feels like God is just stepping on everything we thought of and planned. And yet when we allow God to shatter a dream, as God did for Naomi, and even for Ruth on some level, God has something in mind. He always does. And so every time we lay down or we surrender or we say, okay, God, that, that's a, that dream's gone, that's okay. What is it that you want? What is it that you want me to be doing? There are lessons that we learn along the way from shattered and surrendered dreams. Here are some of those lessons. I think our plans are not always God's plans, and His plans are always better. Shattered dreams are one way that God teaches us total dependence. But God, I had it planned, I had it ready to go, I had the money set aside, and it's all gone. Another lesson is where we serve is not as important as who we serve. I had to learn that. I was committed to certain kinds of ministry in certain places. And the Lord said, no, I've got something different in mind. And so where you serve is nowhere near as important as who, and the who is me. And then the last one, our serving should never be a substitute for knowing the Lord. If all we're into this for is to get out there and do and do and do and do and do, and we're not getting to know the Lord and pursue Him and draw closer to Him, we're doing it backwards. Because our service should flow out of our relationship with Him. And our service will be much more effective and richer when it does. If we're honest, we would all rather have the easy dream come true, wouldn't we? I mean, there's some things that I'd still love to see happen. And yet God doesn't call us to just fulfill little dream fantasies or even really godly dreams. Sometimes God said, that's a, that's a fine dream, but no. But we are called to be faithful, 
continue to love, serve, and follow him wherever he leads. And Jesus says to each one of us, you follow me. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this passage which challenges us to think past ourselves and past even what others are thinking or going through and to just sit back and say, okay, Lord, help me just follow you. Lord, we know it isn't easy all the time and we know that sometimes it actually could be can be difficult. But we ask for, first of all, that you'd give us your insight. And then, Lord God, we ask that you would give us the ability to follow you, wherever that may be. For we ask it in your name. Amen.